Hello there, Dom. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm all right. It feels like it's been a long time since we last spoke. And it's certainly well for our listeners as well, because we've had our nice winter break by this point. Yes. Yes. I mean, snow abound, I think. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, hopefully everyone's had a really good kind of festive season, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've had a, a couple of extra bits and pieces to tide you over in the meantime, but we're back and we're back on regular programming now. Um, as we'll hopefully be getting brighter and warmer as the months go on. And so to begin with, for the second half of our season, we wanted to touch on the topic of community. And we're just going to have a really brief introduction here from Dom and I, because we've got some fantastic guests to talk about this subject. Um, But I think for me, community is a really important part of thinking about eco-anxiety. Um, because one of the big problems that I find of eco-anxiety is that it's something that people don't talk about. So it feels very insular, whereas actually maybe there is that element of talking about it and sharing it with other people and that shared load and equally that shared uh, goal of challenging it too, I think, wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I totally agree. And I think actually, <clears throat> if you think about our other um episodes to date we've we've explored quite a lot of the issues as well as occasionally uh, the odd solution here and there but actually this is probably where we need to do the most in terms of um getting our guests to talk about what are the things that we can do because unless we start to um connect and uh just air this stuff in the places where we live and work and play then it's not really going to get any better, is it? No, exactly. And, you know, there's there's only so much that people can take on on their own, particularly one thing that we've talked about already is that one of the ways to solve eco-anxiety is to solve climate change. And that's something that requires this collective movement, this ongoing pressure and this commitment. And that comes from having strong community. So having that community involvement, having that community build up is going to be really key. But also, one of the important things about I think about being in nature is that sense of community as well. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that with our guests today as well, won't we? Um, but yeah, being having that community around nature is integral, isn't it, to getting those well-being benefits too? Massively, massively. I think, you know, I've spoken before about uh, the things that make up our well-being, such as a, a purpose, a sort of active natural environment around us and people to connect with. And I think that in particular, when uh, we're considering a community-based approach to this really thorny topic, it's really important that we've got others to lean on, what what others might officially call a peer support network, whatever it might be. Because I think climate breakdown and and the crisis is is essentially about a failure of leadership which is largely out of our hands and so actually if we if we're talking about a shift away from those structures and decisions that have failed people actually we're trying to move that power back into our own hands um and not only does that is it kind of reassuring to have other people around it's um it's where the lived experience is, you know, and I think that's where we need to kind of get to. And that's why 
community is such a vital um, subject as far as eco-anxiety is concerned. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you touched on something really important there, which is that it's a leadership failure. Climate change is a leadership failure. Um, Political leadership, um, business leadership, there's all of these different failings there, which is leading to where we are today. And we can feel powerless as individuals against that because it's it's going against the structures of the world that we live in to try and create something better out of that. But actually, there's more power with us from a democratic perspective. And that doesn't necessarily just mean get out and vote and go and do your voting. Actually, that community engagement, that community pressure, you know, a million voices is louder than one person. And it's recognizing that actually that buildup is helping us towards the goals that we want to achieve. And, and there's this really strong movement, and you see it particularly with young people, as we heard on our last episode, of really caring about this. And it's going to be impossible to ignore those voices if we're loud enough, if we're committed enough, and if we really stick it out within our communities too. Yeah, and I'm I'm really looking forward to um, hearing what our guests say, but also how they say what what they say, because the language and the sets of words that we will hear, hopefully, and the ones that we can get used, will be totally different to the stuff that is kind of um, kind of brought down from on high. And I, again, I think that it's it's critical to uh, capturing what people are, are feeling authentically about it but also i don't know have you seen um have you seen those um science breakdown things where they're using various uh, celebrities like joe brand and others to talk about climate they're brilliant absolutely brilliant and i just i think something like that are, are probably going to be more effective to action because you can put having worked in health and nature for god a good 20 odd years or something you can put some incredible stats in front of me you can put some cost savings or we're saving this health or these people feel that they've had their lives turned around and it doesn't seem to make a blind bit of difference whereas actually if you start to yeah give people the chance to say how they're feeling about it uh then i think that's where a a movement starts to build and it starts with community Absolutely. And, and and just on that that topic, there are these psychological studies that show that actually people's minds aren't often changed by listening to the facts. It's that emotional connection that often drives change as well and that often drives mm-hmm. people to action. So yeah, completely that, that emotional connection to things, people talking about how they're feeling, that galvanizes us. That allows us to recognize, have that empathy, and then drive for things really better for other people as well as ourselves. So it's not surprising. That's the way that our minds work. And that's the way that our communities work as well, I suppose, is we we sometimes like to think of human beings as being this very insular, individual, um, self-contained unit. But actually, we're driven by community at a, at a, at a, at a species level. We're all about that community. We're all about supporting one another. So why does eco-anxiety and why does climate change have to be any different? Why don't we use that in the way that we do things? Yeah, I I completely agree with that, Rob. Also, do you think, because we're often 
you know, hearing and, you know, gearing up for election. Here we are in a new year. It's an election year, folks, pretty much. Sorry about that. Um, But we often hear about ambitious targets and being brave and this, that, the other. And, And they're anything but. And actually, don't you think that the bravery and the ambition tends to come from communities? I mean, we wouldn't be anywhere if Greta hadn't kind of sat outside of school and decided to. And look at that. Look at her impact. I mean, that's that's ambition. Yeah, I think ambition from politicians is nothing in comparison to ambition from people, because those politicians, they have that position of power. They have that authority for them. That's not ambition. That's literally what they should be doing with the power that they have. For communities who don't have that power on their doorstep to be able to immediately enact change, to have that bravery, to get over those barriers they're facing, to have that voice, to push people for that change, that's where that real ambition is. And that's the kind of thing that we should be celebrating. And actually, our politicians should be doing far more. They've got the opportunity to do it and they're not doing it. So we should be celebrating our communities far more for that level of ambition, for that commitment, for that drive to see the change that they want to see. Completely. You know, brave and courageous and, and what some people might see as outrageous calls from people who are just feeling X, Y and Z. Um, that connects people. There's there's something within that that says, do you know what? I feel that too. And so I'm going to join you. Um, and let's be, you know, the second person on the hill that joins them and then onwards and upwards we go. So, yeah, I'm really hoping to hear a bit of that uh, and uh, a bit of uh, ambition and uh, a shot in the arm for the for the new year. Excellent stuff. So without further ado, let's get into our guests then. Thanks, Dom. So I'm here and I'm joined with a very special guest that I've got the absolute pleasure of talking to today, Truan. So Truan, would you like to give a quick introduction uh, to yourself for our listeners? Hi, Rob. Yes, uh, so I'm Truan. I guess I'm an environmental entrepreneur. Um, That's how people tend to describe me. It's not really how to describe myself. (laughs) I've set up sort of uh, four environmental organisations, including the charities Global Action Plan, Hubbub, recently a new uh, social enterprise called Sizzle, and before that, a large paper recycling business. Fantastic. And it's really great to have you here today. You know, um, award-winning environmental entrepreneur, as people call you. (laughs) But then on on top of that, you know, the work that you've done with Hubbub and with, with, with Sizzle now has been really interesting to see. And that kind of focus on community engagement in a slightly different way as well. Um, so it'd be really interesting to hear about how community's been important to you, been important for the work that you've done, um, and why you think that's a key element of environmentalism as a whole, um, particularly with the way that you work with organisations as well and how that ties into moving in the right direction, really. Yeah, I, th- I think the environmental world is full of quite abstract issues, which are hard for people to grasp and can be very doom-laden. Um So I think the common thread in all the organisations I've set up have been about, first of all, trying to make environmental issues relevant to people's daily lives so that they they, they can grasp it. Um, Secondly, uh, to show that environmental change actually has social and environmental benefits, you know, uh, financial benefits. We often hear, oh, it's too expensive, but I actually don't believe that. Um, I think it's really important that people do something positive and feel good about it. And it's sort of quite playful and fun. 
Um, so that's always been really important for me. Um, and and that that's really driven all the initiatives that I've developed, I think. So an example is the Community Fridge Network. There's over 350 community fridges around the UK. They make perishable food that would have been wasted available for free to people in the local community. They're run by local community groups and they have massive environmental impacts in terms of reducing food waste. But they also help people connect. They help them sort of make ends meet if their budgets are tight. So they demonstrate that you can do great things for the environment, but also have social and financial benefits as well. Fantastic. And I, I think that's one of those interesting things, isn't it, is that we do often get lost in the the minutiae i suppose of of what things are like we're not particularly good at talking about things in plain english principles and and it, like you said that leads to a lot of these abstract terms so it's really great to see how um you know it's getting down to this is what the reality is this is the practical element you can do and also you know what organizations can do as well um because you're right you know i i come from an uh, an inclusion and diversity background and people often think of that as being a nice to have and sometimes people think about environmental um, and conservation issues in the same way but actually it's best practice and you'll find all of those benefits down the line in terms of financial benefits in terms of supported benefits well-being benefits with it so it's great to hear about all of those kind of things too i think yeah i think i think it is so important and and what i've discovered um i you know i i feel like my most energized when i go out and meet communities and i think the uk and probably other countries as well we're full of hidden heroes we're full of sort of brave people doing incredible things um which alleviating sort of issues that are faced in in their locality they're relevant to, to their ev- everyday needs. And and the problem with those hidden heroes is that they're usually working with incredibly few resources. Um, and they probably feel quite lonely a lot of the time and feel it's yeah. really hard work. Um, but they're achieving astonishing things. And I think the trick is, and one of the things I've tried to do, is to sort of surface those hidden heroes to to bring them to the attention of potentially bigger funders, particularly like companies, and say, look, you as a company, you want to achieve change in your community, or you say you do. Um, there are people doing this. And actually, if you put your resources directly into those people, um, we help connect those people with others around the country doing the same thing. Uh, we show the cumulative benefit of all of their efforts. Um, then you get a different dynamic because you get people feeling more supported. They have more resources. They feel more part of society and actually they 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 can demonstrate that their small effort their very valid small effort is part of a much bigger picture and i think that's where community can be so strong you know it can take these sort of big lofty claims of governments and companies and make them real and make them tangible and actually meet real local needs and i think that's that's the essence of strong community work but but they do need the resources they do need the support that that actually very few of them get access to absolutely and and i think that's one of those big challenges and the resource is always a big issue with environmental and conservation work um and equally you know you get these companies that are maybe trying to reinvent the wheel and they're talking about trying to do something when actually there's there's a grassroots movement that they've not come across or that that you know hasn't been given the megaphone to be able to talk about what they're doing 
that's already doing that incredibly well and they just need that extra bit of resource that can come from somewhere which earnestly wants to see change so yeah really completely agree with everything you said there it's, it's brilliant to see um so this podcast this this first season of our podcast is all about the topic of eco-anxiety of climate distress um so shifting that conversation a little bit how do you think that community and that sense of community can support people with those feelings and and how can that help drive environmental movements forward um to overcome those barriers of eco-anxiety too so i mean eco-anxiety is definitely a thing and you know you just have to look at the science <laughs> and actually yeah. the world situation to, to, to realise that, you know, things are not going in a great direction. Um, and it is so easy just to, to give up, really, and go, oh, we can't cope with this. But I think there are a number of things that Community Action does. does. Well, first of all, it shows that you are personally doing something and, and that actually that others agree with you and support you. So, it helps overcome that feeling of isolation, of desperation, because, you know, you can tangibly see the change that, that you and a group of others uh, can make. Um, I think crucially as well, it, it starts to build resilience to, to the, you know, the, the broader changes we're seeing. So if you can get, you know, people at whatever level, you know, getting involved in their own community energy project or sort of, sort of redistribution of food and local food growing or, you know, planting or creating more green space to, to reduce the risks of urban heating and flood risks. It's, it's actually what you're doing is you're starting on a micro level to do what the government should be doing on a macro level, which is which you're starting to get a community into a place where where it can cope with the inevitable changes we've, we're going to see through climate change. So, so I think sort of community action has quite a personal importance because it makes people feel more valued. But actually, it has a much bigger significance, which is it it helps that community get into a better place for for the changes that we are inevitably going to see. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I find. Um... And, and that you see not just across environmentalism, but across other movements as well, is that it can feel very isolating if you're worried about these things on your own. Um, but then as soon as you get into that kind of community space, it's got that recognition that actually there's other people experiencing this. There's other people that are worried about this. Or maybe there's people there that are worried about it that have a fresh perspective as well that maybe hadn't been considered by you that can kind of change your mindset because things like things like eco-anxiety it can almost feel like this big cloud over your head all of these nebulous elements that you aren't really um fully able to comprehend in how it relates to you um but then by just talking about things with other people or, or talking about action with other people as well you can realize oh actually well this is something we can do here this is something that we can work on and and that's one of those things as well um where it almost feels as though it can help with the movement as a whole, don't you think, too? Completely. <clears throat> and you see it time and again that, you know, you get a group of people together to talk about a local concern. It's often where innovation happens because they have limited resources. They have a really clear aim for what they want to achieve and they find different ways of doing things and, and they work it out. Um, and so so you get that that level of innovation and creativity, which, again, is 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 great for dealing with anxiety because because it sparks different different thoughts in your head in different sort of levels of energy um 
and I going back to what you said earlier about sort of corporates doing the not invented hit stuff and trying to do it all themselves. You know, there is such untapped resource floating around in disparate communities around the UK, all illustrating that actually this change is feasible. Um, you just have to unlock that power. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's a great point there about unlocking that power. It is there. It's just that stored potential to to enact the change that we need. Um, so, so one final question for you today, unfortunately, short and sweet. Um, but um, be really interested to hear about if you've experienced eco-anxiety and climate distress yourself. And if so, what techniques have you found personally that have helped? What kind of things do you do to help with those feelings of of, of, of anxiety around the climate? Yeah, well, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm knocking on a bit. So, um, <laughs> and, and one of my early early jobs was at Friends of the Earth, and uh, they released a report. I think it was probably 35 years ago, called the greenhouse effect, which is like we can't keep pumping carbon dioxide in in the atmosphere. So that's 35 years ago, and since then, I've sat through so many scientific presentations with sort of the graphs of doom, you know, showing what would happen if we carried on on our current path and seeing that politicians and companies and institutions have currently ducked the issue, you know, none of them are brave enough to do what's been obvious. So, you know, in that scenario, it's incredibly depressing. And as we, we've seen even last year, the, the impact of it on the well-being of people is significant. So, so rationally I should be, ultra depressed and I think the only thing that's 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 kept me going is it's just being inspired by hearing and seeing what people are doing knowing that with a bit of innovation and creativity you you can create change and I just have this underlying belief that there are enough good souls in the world wanting to do the right thing that somehow or other even if it's way too late you know we're going to start to find a way through this Uh, and it is going to be difficult um but I just feel that, you know, we all need to to try and do whatever we can in the face of, of quite a gloomy scenario. So I'm not sure if that's a good answer, but but that's that it is it is just the inspiration of meeting people from different backgrounds and knowing that, that there are many others who, who can see the issues and are, are trying to do what they can. 100%. And we see that all the time, people doing things. And, you know, there are things that we have overcome from a from a climate perspective, um, and from a conservation perspective about, um, you know, species that have been saved and everything like that. It's not just a downward trend, there is this fight back. And actually, it's about, like you said, untapping that potential, building that growth, and also building that pressure on people like our politicians who aren't doing enough to, which the more people who are sharing their voice and the more that organisations and corporations want to get involved, it's then putting us in the right direction eventually, even if it sometimes feels like we're not going that way at the moment. Completely. And there have been some huge successes. Like, you know, right in the early days, I was involved in the campaign around the ozone layer. We introduced the Montreal Convention that has saved countless people from getting skin cancer and it's helped replenish those in there. So when there is cumulative action, you can achieve astonishing things. So, you know, we should definitely celebrate the successes of the past, which have avoided some some pretty pretty bad looking scenarios. Excellent. Excellent. Um, thank you so much, Jim. Really appreciate your time today. Um, it's been really nice to speak to you. Well, thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Rob. 
All right, so I'm here and I'm joined by Nikki from the Wildlife Trust. Nikki, if you'd like to give a quick introduction to, to who you are and what you do. Cheers, Rob. Uh, thank you for the invite to have a natter. And my name is Nikki. I'm the Director of Campaigning in Communities for the wildlife. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is um, Next Door Nature, which is an amazing campaign that, that you and your team have been working on and sort of facilitating across um, all of the Federation, all of the different wildlife trusts. So would you mind giving us an overview of what Next Door Nature is? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's the piece of work really that everyone wanted to do in every wildlife trust but we didn't quite have the resources and the space and the time to do it. And and what it was, was a need to respond to the fact that we knew communities had got amazing and fabulous ideas of how to help nature recover, but they were struggling to know how to begin, where to start. And we could help them with starting. Um, and once we'd given them that little bit of support to get going, boy, oh boy, did they get going and they just rocketed forward. Um, and that's what we wanted to capture. We just wanted to work out how can we get better at helping people help themselves because they have passion and they have love for nature and they just want to crack on with it. But they need that first bit of support. So Next Door Nature is kickstarting and supporting a community group to do what they want to do for nature. And it's been so great as someone, you know, looking in from within the Wildlife Trust of the incredible work that, that, that you and your team have been doing at where these community groups have gone, the, the, the variety, the diversity of those groups as well. You know, this feeling of passion for nature, particularly nature on your doorstep in your community is right there. And there's so many brilliant, creative ways that people have been doing it. Um, so. Why is next door nature important? You know, why is it important to our communities? Why do you think that it's such a key thing that we've been looking at focusing on? Well, I think if you look back in our history as the Wildlife Trust, we've got 46 charities and every single one of them were created by a group of people being really frustrated, really naffed off, let's be honest, about what was happening in nature where they lived and they came together to make a difference. So our history, our bones of who we are inside every single wildlife trust is communities coming together to make a difference. And that got formalised over the years and we became formal charities. But that essence of communities wanting to take control of what was happening where they lived, not going and building a nature reserve, not visiting a specific site that's been put aside for people to go and see or experience nature, but actually wanting to look after what was part of where they live, their homes, their lives, their communities. And we needed to put that back because we were hearing it all the time. And people were like, help us, we want to make this happen. And we just wanted to make sure that we could be there at the heart of that because the beauty of the Wildlife Trust is we are rooted within the places where we were founded. We are in those communities. So we have a responsibility, really. And I think all of us were feeling that sense of responsibility that we really wanted to get back to those roots. And we knew because of where we come from that communities make a magnificent difference to help in nature. And we wanted to unlock that magic again. We wanted to get back to our roots. 
are fantastic and you know uh, to me from an inclusion and diversity perspective it's so important as well we know about all of those barriers to nature about people being excluded from nature when it is something that feels separate from where they live so having that connection and recognition of there's nature everywhere there's nature wherever we are but it's something that needs to be protected and supported and actually that that support and protection comes from within that community is such an integral part of the way that we do things. Um, so the, the, the focus of this podcast, as you know, is on eco-anxiety. Um, and I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on how you feel that, that projects like Next Door Nature could have an impact on eco-anxiety, how they could help people with those feelings of climate distress and concern. How do you reckon that it could help with that? So basically, it's where you can make a difference without having to think about how do I solve the entire planet's problems in the next two weeks. So what we get is we get lots of news and information and organisations like us do it. Horrible words, crisis, you know, collapse, all of those things that are really debilitating and they make you feel small. They make you feel inadequate. And what we're saying is, Every little bit adds up to the bigger picture. Every tiny piece that we do, when you connect that together, becomes the solution as a whole. And that's very much where you can start to tackle your eco-anxiety. So if all you have is a space as big as a small plant pot, but you put some wildflowers in that plant pot and you start to see bees and butterflies coming along and feeding, then you're doing your bit. You're starting to help to build that little network back up again that means nature connects up and it starts to thrive and grow. But even better than that, you get the Billy bonus of the fact that you get to chill out watching that happen because all of our lives are busy, hectic. We're bombarded with news, information, social media, uh, 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 hitting us on the head all the time. You can just step back. You can take five minutes. And for everything you give to nature, nature gives that chill out moment back to you. So it's a win-win. And then when you look up and you have a chat with a wildlife trust type organization, or you join a community that's being hosted by maybe an organization like ours, and you realize there's other people doing little things and feeling the same way as you and taking those small steps together, you get that sense of space and growth and size and joint impact. And when you've got that joint impact, you own it. And when you own it, you're back in control and you can start to overcome some of those feelings. It's not a magic potion, but it is part of helping us feel better and more in control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's so fantastic to hear. Um, Equally, you know, like you said, there's all of those health benefits of having nature around you particularly on your mental health as well and so you get all of those knock-on impacts of yes we're helping nature and we're helping with climate change through these small steps that we're doing in our communities but on top of that you're also getting those ripple effects aren't you as well which is so great to see um so so one final question for you today what exciting things are happening next with next door nature because it's it's been this amazing snowball effect of the work that's been going on but really love to hear what else you've got in store um so what we've got in store is just helping more communities to do the same so i think i recently um i heard about a great project in ipswich called the hive 
Um, and they are working with refugees. They're working with different members of the community in a space that's renowned for having poor air quality. But by starting to work out what to plant and how to come together and to create gardens, they're making an impact on how to address those challenges around air quality. But also they're starting to grow things together, feel useful together as a community, um, create food. And that's what we're finding a lot of, actually, Rob, is people want to come together to take over community growing spaces so that they can start to do things like growing, um, you know, growing food, being able to share that food, cooking together, all of those bonding things that come from putting a seed in the ground. So it's it's really important that um, that we continue nurturing that. And that's what the Wildlife Trust want to do is nurture. And I think another one that springs to mind is in Derbyshire. Um, there's lots of kids who've taken over spaces that have been previously had a really poor reputation for um, there being drug paraphernalia left about, fly tipping. And what they've done is by planting up those spaces, People don't look at it as a place to abuse anymore and to dump things into. They see it as a space that is being respected and looked after. And then they've reflected that same respect back. And these problems have stopped happening. And whilst those problems have stopped happening, they've connected two big green areas, two big parks up. So then what you've got is nicer places to live. People being respectful of where they live. And then a corridor of green that is connecting two big park areas up that means wildlife can move. And it's, do you know what? The full of it is not knowing what those solutions are going to be as we move forward. That's what we want to keep doing is going out to communities and saying, right, here's the skills, but what do you reckon? And it's the creativity. And you mentioned it earlier on. It's the creativity. They're, they're solutions that we would never as a conservation charity come up with because we think in a different way and our context is very different. But what we're doing with this is we're willing to learn from and understand what communities want. And the fun bit for me, um, and I think moving forward is just that continual learning and excitement and unlocking creativity so people feel that it's very much within their reach to be able to make a difference because it's it's what they want to do and it's what they're motivated by and it's what they're able to do. And so as long as we keep playing to that strength in people, we will see Next Door Nature go on and grow and continue to do brilliant stuff. Brilliant. And it's really exciting to see where it's going to go next. So thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Rob. I'm here and I'm joined by Bella, who is here to talk about what work she's done from a community perspective, especially with regards to climate cafes. So Bella, would you like to just give a quick introduction? Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast. I have recently started an apprenticeship with Kent Wildlife Trust. I am an education and wellbeing apprentice. Um, so I've been helping out with the holiday clubs, with school trips and with the Wild and Wellbeing programme since I've started. Oh, fantastic. But when we're thinking about the ideas around eco-anxiety, actually your journey with that began a lot before you, you joined the Wildlife Trusts, didn't it? So it was when you were studying. So I don't know if you'd like to give just a little bit of an overview of you know what you were studying and, and, and how that felt and how that ties into discussions about eco-anxiety at all. 
Yeah, absolutely. So way back when I finished school, I did a year out in an art course. And during that time, I found out all about fast fashion and everything that's tied in with that. And I'd always been interested in environmental science. Um, so I had a bit of a rethink and decided to do an environmental social science course, an undergrad at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And so that was a, a three year course, but I did a placement year as well with the university sustainability team and just throughout those four years I learned so much about climate change about the science behind it about human wildlife conflict and how all of these interconnected complex relationships work and fit together and obviously it can be very scary um and a lot of my peers and colleagues felt exactly the same way so it's just kind of getting to the stage where everyone was figuring out how scared we were collectively and thinking about how, you know, if we're all feeling the same way, what can we do to help ourselves, to help the people who are going to be in a similar situation elsewhere? And yeah, what we can do together as a community to help ourselves out a little bit. And and what you did in the end was amazing. And when I heard about the sort of project that you were running, um, it really, you know, it shows the hope of what kind of community activism and community support can be. So I don't know if you want to give a bit of a, an overview about what you did and and what you and 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 uh, and all of your peers did in terms of supporting with eco anxiety. Yeah, of course. So it all started with a voluntary group. It was called the Sustainability Working Group. And that was something that was set up by staff and students within the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent. And we had identified, you know, one of my friends, she put a post on this group that we had saying like, this paper's just been released and it's talking about this thing called eco-anxiety. And a few of us read it and we were like, oh, this is me. <laughs> it's like that's that instant recognition of someone's put a name to something we were all feeling, but we didn't have a name for it. So we didn't know what it was. And so we started up a little well-being subgroup within the sustainability working group. And it all kind of started from there. We all read the papers, found out what people started doing already. Um, and we decided to get in contact with somebody from the Climate Psychology Alliance. And from there, what we did, we had a training session with them. And so we then figured out how to do and facilitate and run our own climate cafes. And climate cafes are... It's basically, it's a metaphorical cafe. We all come together in one space and it basically just gives that safe space for us to openly talk about all of these terrifying issues that usually people don't want to hear about. You know, it's a bit gloomy sometimes and, you know, maybe your friends and family that aren't also feeling the same way don't often want to talk about those kind of things. And so having that set time is really beneficial because you can get things off your chest with people who are feeling similar things and allow them to share their feelings as well. And it's very reassuring to have somebody echo your own thoughts and feelings. You know, like having somebody say, oh yeah, like I actually felt that way about that thing as well. Or I've been really struggling with this. Um, and then you recognize that feeling within yourself. And so having that as an open space where People can come along and find it, discover it. They might not even realise that they're suffering with eco-anxiety. And then they come along um, because it piques their interest. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I actually have a community of people now that, um, you know, it really provides a good support network. 
brilliant and and you really hit the nail on the head there about how it helps you know to have other people that are feeling the same thing and echoing that back to you because you know from my experiences of eco anxiety it can feel really lonely can't it when you you think oh it's me against this huge change what can i do but actually when you know that there's other people around that are feeling the same way or maybe feeling something similar but in a slightly different way it kind of helps that perspective change and i think one of the great things about this with the climate cafes is how it sort of ties into these ideas of community of of sort of that communal discussion about that openness um how do you feel that that kind of community element made it such a success i think having the the cafes fairly regularly and having certain people that would come along every time and having certain people that would drop in and discover it throughout the year it was just really special because you got to make new friends at the same time you know like I, I'm still friends with lots of people that came along to the cafes and it's like oh okay you're scared about this too let's you know let's hang out let's go grab coffee um and also what really helped for us is that the university has a community garden called the Kent Community Oasis Garden and that's on the campus so they very kindly offered for us to host it there so they've got a little a little shed um that was big enough had like table and kettle and all sorts of stuff so you know we had it was a very warm environment we had like hot drinks we had cake and you know having that community garden as a hub really really benefited us because it meant that people then got also got involved with the community garden which is again another community project so I think having that as a centre um, and then people would come along to the sessions. I think it just felt very homely. It's a very welcoming space overall. So hosting the cafes there gave it more of um more of a permanent feel as opposed to just being a metaphorical cafe for two hours and then it kind of disappears again. But yeah, it's been fantastic meeting these people, still being friends with them now um, and knowing that you've got that support network even after the cafes because you exchange numbers and then it's like, oh, OK, well, if I'm really worried, I know that so-and-so is feeling the same way. So maybe I can meet up with them and have a chat, even if there isn't a cafe coming up soon. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and you know, one thing I'd really love to hear about is is what has been successful about it. Have people felt more confident in their eco-anxiety? Has it helped challenge their eco-anxiety? Um, have people felt more positive or maybe like galvanized towards more action? Um, what have been the sort of end results of of, of the cafe? So what, what, what's the impact been? Well, it's interesting you say that actually, because there's been quite a few of us that every time a cafe is coming up, we're like, oh, I really don't want to do this. You know, I'm really not feeling like I want to open up at the moment. But we, we drag ourselves along anyway because we know it's good for us. And then every single time, you know, at the beginning of the cafe, you kind of talk about why you're here, what's brought you here, how you're kind of feeling at the moment, like really checking in with yourself. And then at the end, we have we usually do a round and everybody chooses one or two words to explain like describe how you're feeling at the end of the session and everybody even if it might be I'm feeling angry it's a positive kind of anger you know it really it sometimes it's just a space where you can sit with your feelings and you might not feel that much better afterwards not all the time you know it, like it really is dependent on how how you're doing in your general life at the, at the time but other times and the majority of the time you feel you know at a minimum 
relieved that you're not alone. You know, it's that recognition that other people are feeling the same way. And a lot of the time, you know, you get it off your chest and it gives you this freedom and it gives you this new burst of energy where you can say to yourself, like, okay, right, I'm ready now. Like, I've got my people. They're here. They're here to support me. We're all here to support each other. Like, we know what we need to do. Even if it's just something small, let's go and do it, you know. So it's not, the cafes aren't about action. Like, I feel like that's a really important thing for us to stress to people. It's not, we're not encouraging action. It's all talking about the feelings and having that support network. But like you say, it does really help in helping us cope with those feelings of eco-anxiety and kind of almost processing it a little bit, just giving you that time to come to terms with it and then moving forward from that in whatever way is best for you personally. Oh, that's fantastic. And and it sounds like a really amazing place to be that it, you know, this thing that can feel almost like this unknowable cloud, it turns it into something more real, doesn't it, by talking about it. And I think that's something that we can all take away is actually if we are feeling this way about things, talk about it with people, talk about it with other people. And you might find actually that you're not alone or it might help clarify the way that you're feeling. So it's so great to hear about about these cafes and, you know, the amazing impact that it's had. Um, so Bella, thank you very much for your time. I um, really appreciate it. No worries. <laughs> thank you for talking with me. Hello, Bernadka. So it's great to talk to you. Um... Could you just uh, tell us and the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself? Hi, Dom, and thank you for inviting me. It's great to be able to talk to you today. My name is Bernadette Kadabitska, and I've got quite a few different roles. So I'm at the University of York, Helen York Medical School, where I'm Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And I'm also a consultant child psychiatrist at Greater Manchester Mental Health Trust in Bolton. And then I wear quite a few different hats. So one of those is the Association of Child Adults and Mental Health, where I'm an editor-in-chief of one of the journals there, um, and various other roles, which maybe I'll come to when, I'm, when we're having this discussion. I, I, I suppose the last thing I should say, that I, was, I used to be the chair of child adolescent psychiatry faculty at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and that's where um, I led and did a lot of work around the ecological crisis and child adolescent mental health, which is what we're talking about today, and I'm still quite involved with the Royal College. Yes. And to my mind, I mean, it, it may not be uh, the case, but the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists was where quite a lot of the sort of discussion around eco-anxiety and eco-distress started. Am I right in thinking that? I don't know about started, but I think the Royal College of Psychiatrists does have a platform. So as a member of the organisation, I think it's really important that we are utilise that as much as possible. So when I was the chair of our faculty, I was really pleased that our president was Adrian James. And for him, the ecological crisis was a really important issue. So it was with his, his leadership as well that we were really able to build on this issue. And then for me, it's, for me, it's one of one of the, if not the most important issues today for our children and young people. So I was really keen to do as much as I could whilst I had that platform as well. Um, so, you know, when I was chair of, of the faculty, we set up the EcoCams group. And, you know, part of our mission was uh, to promote as much awareness around the issue. Um, but that was also within the context of COP26, which was taking place around the same time. And that coincided with our president, Adrian, 
leading on our position statement on the ecological crisis and uh, mental health as well. Um, and then through that, we were able to do quite a lot of work, various activities, and that, that included producing a fact sheet for children, young people and families around the concept of eco-distress. And because it's the Royal College, we do have a communications officer, we do liaise with the press regularly, and you know it was really helpful that the press picked up on that and it did get quite a lot of airtime. So you know I think it's important if we we are in those positions, if we do have a voice, if we can raise awareness around the issue, it's important we do. And so I've been fortunate being able to do that through the Royal College and, and eco-distress was one of those issues we were able to speak about and it was picked up by the mainstream media. Fantastic. And just at the start, what you were saying there is that you thought it was the kind of most important uh, or, you know, sort of or significant issue that you're dealing with. So could you say a bit more about that? That's that's incredible. And 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 obviously you're seeing more diagnoses about these. But is it that sort of huge problem, do you think? I think there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, but if I sort of take it from the top, I mean, from my own personal view, is that I think there's three major issues that are going to be effect- are affecting our children, young people, and will do and will affect future generations. Um, it might not present itself through the door in my clinic, but I think these are sort of existential issues for our children. So I think inequalities and drivers of inequalities are one of those. I think what's happening in technology, social media is another. And the third one, I think, is is what we're talking about today, the ecological crisis. In a way, a lot of these things are interconnected. So, for example, you can't disconnect the impact in inequalities and the impacts of the ecological crisis on mental health because it's the most vulnerable that will be the most affected. And similarly, the way we communicate, you know, in this day and age through social media and technology, that's also got a huge impact in terms of what our young people are hearing, how they're influenced and how that might impact on them as well. So I see them as interconnected issues that are difficult yeah. to separate out. 100%. And I must, I must um, then pick you up on the whole issue about diagnosis because that's a really, really important one, Dom. Yes, um, do, please. And that's something that, you know, that's one of the reasons that we um, produce the in fact sheet around eco-distress for families as well. So it's not a diagnosis. Um okay. I think one of there's a really good quote, someone called Lawton. I don't, so I don't know their full name, but I read, um, I thought it sort of summarized it really well that this is not an outbreak of insanity. It's an outbreak of sanity. You know, it, it's, it's a sane response for our children, young people to what's happening around them to be aware of the, of the ecological crisis, what's happening to their world. And it's an absolutely natural response to that. And so it's so important we don't pathologize, pathologize that and talk about diagnoses um, because it's a completely understandable response to what they're seeing happening around them that of course doesn't mean that young people that doesn't mean that young people aren't more adversely impacted by the ecological crisis in many different ways and again it'll be the most vulnerable who'll be the most affected so many young people we're seeing this increasingly throughout the world including in the UK will be affected by the ecological crisis directly by things like flooding, and we've seen that in the UK, and storms, fires. We've seen that throughout Europe as well. And and But, of course, it's those people, young people living in the most adverse, deprived circumstances that will be the most affected, what, you know, and that includes within our own country. So it's those, you know, homeless people, people who don't 
have homes that are properly insulated. Um, you know, so, and, and of course, globally, it's people who can't afford to insure their homes and therefore end up in the cheapest properties living in the most um, climate impacted areas, whether that's forest fires or whether it's floods. Um, so there's the, those direct impacts of these natural disasters that we see in people whose homes are destroyed, whose families might be destroyed, um, who then suffer trauma as a result of that. And if those young people are already vulnerable and they already have existing mental health difficulties, that, of course, doesn't they'll have less resilience to manage manage their mental health problems as well. And then, of course, there's the so-called indirect impacts, you know, such as eco-distress. And that's a bit of a catch-all phrase. It's not just eco-distress or eco-anxiety. It encompasses all sorts of feelings and emotions, you know, from rage and anger at, you know, what our governments are not doing, um, you know, to significant anxiety or distress. Um, and that's something that we still need to learn a lot more about. So with my other hat on in terms of my academic hat, we know that there's still insufficient research done in this area, but of course we can't wait for the research while you know we can't we can't wait while we can't wait for the research to then act upon the climate crisis and the ecological crisis. But it is important that we continue looking at the impacts of young people and get more data around this as well. It's really interesting, and it, it's um, I suppose in one way reassuring that someone from your academic and professional background is reflecting what we're hearing on the podcast. Um, and that is, you know, what you were saying, um, there's this logical response that, you know, uh, that um, lots of our guests have, have talked about, you know, the sort of, of course, it's understandable, but but also the health equity issues uh, that, um, you know, that we know that climate change is a major health equity issue. And therefore, anybody that has worries uh and anxieties about the situation um and what struck me there what you were saying there about the the technology being one of those other kind of growing areas that clearly those two areas converge here really strongly don't they you know Mm -hmm. this we've heard a lot from young people about the kind of this phenomenon of doom scrolling and 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 how that can just exacerbate any feelings you might be having are you are you seeing that sort of thing and, and and more? So I'm not necessarily seeing young people walking in through my door saying I'm suffering from climate distress, you know, eco distress. It doesn't yeah. quite happen in those sorts of ways, does it? Yeah. No. Um, and particularly because the areas I work, you know, for example, Oldham in sort of East Manchester area, are some of the most deprived urban areas in the country as well. So, you know, these are the sorts of families who are, you know, struggling to put food on the table and keep warm during winter. Mm. So those are obviously the most immediate areas of concern for them. But, of course, the rest of us who are in a more privileged position, you know, we do need to be speaking out around these, you know, more sort of global impacts and effects on the families that, you know, we're starting to see that are not going to get any better. And, of course, those effects, you know, as they increase, as we keep seeing more and more of the impacts of the ecological crisis, that is then going to put more and more strain on services because we will see more climate-related disasters, consequent trauma, grief, bereavement reactions, depression, anxiety, which will mean that we will see more families coming through our doors. So it has an absolute direct impact on the services we provide as well. Um so these things can't be disconnected. You know, however, 
I suppose there's a couple of other things I want to pick up on. One is that, you know, climate crisis is often talked about, but I do feel it's very much at the expense of talking about nature and the, and the global ecological crisis, which I, I know that's something you're really aware of, Dom, and all the work you do at the Wildlife Trust. Um, but that's why it was important that within our college position state, we did refer to the ecological crisis because we're seeing a devastating loss of our environment, as you know, and of our wildlife and our, our nature. And of course, again, it's the most vulnerable, deprived children and people who have got the least access to nature. Um, and and as we know, as again, emerging evidence that access to nature, connection to nature can have a positive impact on mental health as well. So again, it's important that people like ourselves can speak out and talk about those direct positive impacts of nature and the environment as well in terms of mental health. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a really um, critical point from the position that the, the, the Royal College took. And I, I know you were involved a lot in that, but you don't you you don't see it in a lot of other places, particularly when you look, you know, governmental policies around the world. It's starting to change now but the role of nature not only as you've described but you know to build those resilience and and to help people adapt to what's already baked in so obviously there's the health impacts you know sort of heat spikes and uh, uh and and you know the need for tree canopies cooling water you know better design of places where we live but i think also we need we need to di- design in, we're talking about community in this episode, we need to design in those natural places so that people feel they can come together. Um, so do you see a role for communities in helping to, you know, air this, uh, alleviate some of the um, feelings of, of distress that people might have and, and arrive at some solutions as well? Well, absolutely. And, you know, we've got the sort of a living example of that in sort of Greta Thunberg and the action one child can take and the impact that can make globally. So, you know, we can't we can't get anywhere without government action. We we know that. We also know how difficult it is to get those agreements, as we've seen in the recent COP as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it's you know it's it's, it's it has to be a community effort really doesn't it yeah um and you know what's the phrase sort of from you know, small acorns big oaks grow don't they to yeah. use a sort of a common phrase and as i say we've and we've seen that with greta thunberg as well and often it's it's those community actions those individuals that can make a difference to governments as well and you know the work i do with young people and participation co-production um you know throughout mental health you know when i want to work with government policy it's usually the voice of young people that may have the most impacts, not necessarily always the case, but certainly, you know, I've often found in my professional work that governments are much more like, politicians are much more like to listen to young people than they are to people like myself. So it's so important to have that model of, you know, co-production, as we refer to it, working in communities, working in partnership. And of course, as, you know, as with child mental health, it's a systems approach you know, children don't live in isolation. None of us do. We all live in systems. And it's so important that we work together because this issue affects each and every one of us in whatever environment we live in, whatever profession we work in. Um, and as um, Richard Smith said, and he, 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 he contributed to our special issue on the environment at the Associated Child's Mental Health. So I led on a special issue on the ecological crisis to coincide with COP26. Uh, Richard Smith was the ex-editor of the British Medical Journal, now heads up the UK 
Health Climate Alliance. And, and he talked about the importance of leadership and the fact it's not remote. So each and every one of us can act in some way, however small or large that might be. Um, but it's so important that we can all speak out whichever way we feel we can. We can't all do everything, um, but we can all do something in some way and connect with other people. It's, it's a really great way of putting it. And I think we're finding um, those traditional routes to, let's say, influencing decision makers and leadership, those sorts of things, where you might have a traditional public affairs type approach. They have their limits. And actually, what it needs is that combined approach where, um, you know, you you find a way to let people and their voices be heard and to raise that into how people are feeling and what the actual impacts are authentically where people are living where they're working where their children play you build that into policy positions as you say you uh, you know naturally people come out like Greta or like the you know the sort of um uh you know Ella's law around air pollution you know really just tragic situations or the the awful thing you know uh, that that um that people have around housing and and the case of the black mold which is near where you live that was a horrendous thing and i think those stories and experiences are important and and then you've got the professional and the academic side as well and the research and i think actually the combination of those we we have to we have to work together otherwise um um you know we can let people off the hook and it's it's getting quite urgent isn't it yeah i think quite urgent is probably the biggest understatement of the century really isn't it (laughs) yes but but again i think that's there's another really important issue in terms of the communication around this you've sort of briefly touched on how communication you know on social media for example can you know add to the distress of young people it's how and it's how you have those conversations that can be empowering, that can be useful. Also, the language you use, so you have to think about the message you're giving and to whom you're speaking, because it can be a real turn-off for those people who maybe aren't so convinced, and there's plenty of them around, that this is such an urgent issue. Um, And that's something I've experienced through, you know, throughout my professional life as well, which is another reason it's important to speak out when you have, have those conversations when you can. But the language you use is also important. Sometimes that very emotive language can be a turn off and doesn't necessarily bring other people on side with you. Yeah. Um, and and also for some young people that, you know, sort of the language of distress, emergency and fear can also exacerbate and paralyse some young people. So it's a complicated picture really but I think the communications around this how we communicate to whom we commun- what audience we're trying to reach the message we want to give is really important and you know I'm plugging my journal of course I'm going to mention it again <laughs> but for people who are listening please do it's, they're, they're free to look at so it's Association of Child and Lesson Mental Health ACAM um, special issue on the ecological crisis but we had a, a number of articles there and again we wanted to highlight some of the research that's being done because there's so little out there and we really need a lot more but there was some interest some interesting free papers there people can have a look at one was around newspaper narratives and how young people are portrayed in the media and how they can be demonized and we've seen that with Greta Thunberg you know she had you know she had really hateful comments made about her you know people like Donald Trump um 
and or they can be infantilized. Um, and so some of the messages around that was that we, you know, we do have to be careful how young people are portrayed. And there are political agendas, of course, there as well. Um, and, you know, one of the conversations we had in the journal at the time was that it's no wonder sometimes that young people maybe are turned off by mainstream media and then turn to social media to get most of their information. But of course, as you sort of started to touch on earlier, not all social media, a lot of it doesn't have very reliable sources of information. And some of it, you know, can be um, can be misleading. It can also maybe be, as you say, that doom scrolling. Mm. Um, and one of the stud papers we published was around, you know, the impact of social media and how young people learn about the environment and those issues through social media and how some of it could be a real turn off um, and how young people do want reliable sources um, to turn to and how they want to be educated around these issues and also find ways of being able to you know, enact on the crisis in their own small ways through their communities, as you mentioned. And from other sort of sources of research, we do know that if you can enable young people, give them a sense of empowerment, that can you know, really help to not only manage their mental health, but also to improve their resilience um, and give them a sense of agency as well. Um, not for all, not all young people want to get involved, but for those that do, I think that's really important. And of course, you know, we know that young people in this country don't get a vote till age 18. Um, but it's, you know, it's often that sort of those teenagers, those adolescents sort of under 18 who do feel really strongly about this and then consequently have that really strong sense of disempowerment. And we know that from that really important Lancet survey that was one of 10,000 young people throughout the world where the majority felt governments were letting them down and felt really betrayed. Um, so we need to be able to give young people that voice whenever we can, however we can. And, you know, I've certainly tried to do that in my work, both through the journal, so the few young people contributed to that, both in writing and through various webinars and podcasts we did, and also through the college where a number of young people we've worked with who've been users of mental health services have helped really strongly about this issue and contributed really, really productively to this debate and this discussion. It's really interesting that, you know, you're outlining there some of the things that um, are working and helping, at least. Um, so you're talking about, you know, activism and, and as well as having the impact, hopefully, on leaders, It the actual act of participating in a campaign or, you know, taking the action further that's helping um what what else are you seeing and, and you mentioned it might not be for everyone so what else is the evidence or the practice saying that is is helping the situation or that's starting to work in dealing uh with things like eco-anxiety well so the the research is still really limited um so we, we touched on some of it in that particular issue but you know what what's emerging which is what we know around um, young people's mental health issues and um, for mental health in general it's very much an individual process so different people will respond in different ways um, so as, as I was saying earlier if you're already quite vulnerable if you've experienced trauma and depression already then the impacts of as you say doom scrolling or sort of really negative stories about the environment may well be more likely to sort of tip you further into depression um, some young people find that engaging in these sort of community activities empowers them more, gives them a sense of purpose. It also allows them to engage with the communities of the young people. 
who also you know feel the same way as they do and that can be really helpful for other young people the more work they do in this field in fact somebody actually kept professional came up to me the other day we had a really great green event um at the university of york and we pulled together there lots of professionals from different backgrounds you know from architecture from community projects etc presenting the sorts of work we were doing but one professional psychologist came up to me afterwards and didn't feel able to speak out about this within the, the forum itself and said, well, how do you keep going with this? You know, I feel really strongly about this. I've got young children. It's so important that we do what we can. But I just feel a sense of despair and that nothing's changing and nothing's making a difference. So it's not just young people who feel that. Sort of, you know, adults feel that too, don't they, at times? Yeah. Um, but I guess my response to that is you do what you can when you can, um, you make use of the platforms that you do and you try and, you know, connect with people when you can. None of us can change everything, but we can all, most of us can contribute in some small way. If yeah. if we're in a fortunate position, we can actually do that. And we have the, the resilience and the ability to do that. And we need, and we have to do that to speak out for those people. You know, the many families that I see that, you know, are just, you know, are just living in desperate poverty and, you know, can't heat their houses don't have clean clothes to wear at school and you know so we, we have to speak out for families like that for those generations i completely agree and i think you know in terms of what we need to see next i suppose uh you know you've 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 touched on uh you know it's individual and it's very much that kind of you know um so we, we can't have this kind of broad brush approach we need to be flexible um clearly there are um some some policies that we can immediately implement to to tackle you know the um those cost of living that's often caused those crises where people's homes are damaging their health um or or other things like that where actually taking action on that and insulating them properly mm -hmm. and you know you know helping people with their uh, sort of bills and that cost of living that is part of dealing with the climate crisis wider but on a very small scale um this is part of it so is there is there anything else uh, that you think is really important that that happens next I mean, that's a big question, really, isn't it? It <laughs> is. Just, you know, it is. Chipping away, chipping away. I mean, from my personal perspective, it's just to keep raising this issue. We touched on earlier that this message is, you know, that our, our concerns around this issue are not necessarily universal. More and more people, you know, are becoming aware of it. But there's still a lot of people who feel that... Um, that there's, you know, that, that is the the effects are exaggerated, um, and, I, and unfortunately, it still happens in my profession. So we did a survey of child lessons psychiatrists, and although you know most psychiatrists that responded did feel this was an issue for young people, they were seeing more and more young people in clinics, you know, who were impacted by the ecological crisis. The mental health was impacted. But, you know, only half of those respondents, and those are the ones who actually responded, were interested enough to respond, felt that this was something that they should be engaging with, even though we have sustainability targets and carbon targets for the NHS. NHS produces 5% of our carbon emissions. They Still half of those respondents and those of the people who are interested felt that this was an issue they needed to be acting on, and that it was much more important they just stay focused on their day jobs and services. And, course from my perspective as, as you were saying that these things are all interlinked and you can't disentangle them 
But, and you know, and I know and I work in the NHS, we know how difficult things are at the moment in terms of services, in terms of resource, in terms of workforce. Post-COVID, people have burnt out. But it's, it's, it makes it even more important that we still continue to talk about this. So from my point of view, it's, you know, just continue to speak out, linking in with like-minded people. You know, I've got a voice, you know, on various platforms and just keep getting that message across to the people that I work with. Um, and emphasise the importance of it and try and change some more minds so more and more people can start to, just to start to be thinking about the issues, start to have those conversations. So that that's, I guess, that's on an individual level. But the more we do that, hopefully the more that we can get that message across to wider society as well. And of course, it's not just a local issue, a national issue, it's an international issue. Um, so I've recently, there's a, a recent organisation I've joined called Developmental um, uh, scientists for climate action and there's a group of us uh, researchers academics throughout the world who work with children young people and to join forces to work together to to try and raise this issue particularly amongst academics as well um, so again it's important that we try and do that on whatever level we can including internationally and and work across disciplines and across professions you know so for example our Green event day at the University of York last week. You know, there was really interesting talks, for example, people work in the built environment with architecture, talking about the importance of biophilic sustainable design, bringing nature into buildings as well. So all, all those um, cross-cutting uh, uh, issues and professions that are so important. Um, so there isn't, one, there isn't one goal, is there? There isn't one thing that no. needs to happen. There are many things that need to happen across many disciplines across many communities um i I think that's a perfect uh sort of note to end on actually so uh, if i could uh just say thank you uh thank you uh professor bernadka dubitska uh it's been a real pleasure talking to you thanks very much for inviting me don Thank you very much for joining Dom and I for today's episode. We hope it's been interesting and we'll be back with you in two weeks.